Hey, before we begin, a quick reminder that today's episode is made possible in part by the Todd and Stephanie Schnick Foundation. Find us at schnickfoundation.org. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Let's go, y'all. You are listening to The Foundation Podcast. Our goals are to help you build the foundation to live your best life, help solve problems, better serve humanity, and to become a beacon to help inspire change. We connect you with today's leaders, affecting positive and impactful global change. And now, here are your hosts, Todd and Stephanie Schnick. Good morning. Welcome back to the Foundation Podcast. I am your host, Todd Schnick. I started this show for exactly the reason about the conversation we're about to have. This is the kind of deep dive conversation that I wanted to have on the show to help me and others really get into the weeds on critically important issues. Uh, This is going to be a great conversation. I'm so looking forward to it. As we record this conversation, we're deep in the throes of the COVID-19 pandemic. So we're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about kind of the state of the world on where we are. Uh, Most of you listening to this are probably in the U.S. and we all have our opinions and our news sources about what's happening there. We're going to go a little broader. We're going to talk about what's happening globally on this. And so it should be fascinating. We're going to learn a lot there. We're going to then move into some other infectious diseases. Uh, You will recall HIV, tuberculosis, malaria. These were mission critical issues that were front of mind before COVID-19. Well, folks, they're still there. There's still a problem. There's still a lot of work to be done there. We're going to talk about COVID-19 and how everything that's happened there has impacted our battle against those three infectious diseases. And then we're going to close with a, a general conversation around global health. We're going to talk a lot about global health. That's the key theme today is, is why does it matter? Where are we going next? Have you learned any lessons? from our previous battles with things like HIV and TB and malaria. And now with COVID-19, have we learned some things? Are we ready? Because there will be another pandemic down the road. And will we be ready? Will we have learned enough lessons to be ready for that battle when that day comes? It's going to be a really intriguing conversation. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, This is another example of why you should surround yourself with people a lot smarter than you. I'm so blessed to be joined by three people today. I'm going to learn an awful lot from them. They are leaders in this global health field. Uh, I'm so looking forward to it. Uh, Let me go around and introduce everyone. Uh, First, I want to start off with Jenny Dyer. You might recognize Jenny. She's been on the show before on that conversation. We focused around health. Jenny, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us, Todd. Oh, the pleasure is mine. And I uh, do want to give you a shout out. This conversation today was your baby, was your idea, and you were the one that made this happen. So on behalf of all of us, I want to thank you for uh, helping uh, coordinate and making this particular conversation happen. Before we uh, move on, Jenny, remind the audience a bit about you and your background and the work that you're out there doing. Sure. Thanks. And I'm excited that Shannon and Mark could join us today. So just as background, I have been working on these issues around the Global Fund since its inception in 2002. I just, as a reminder, worked with um, the Data Foundation on these issues where we did the work of education and advocacy for AIDS, TB, and malaria in support of the Global Fund. And Bono was the founder, and I worked largely with the faith community. I've worked with Senator Bill Frist and ran his Hope Through Healing Hands for about a decade. We continued to support and advocate for the funding for the Global Fund. And for the last five years, I've had the privilege of working with Mark and Shannon at Friends of the Global Fight to help lead their faith outreach to support the Global Fund. So I've gotten to see the 20-year arc of the incredible work it's done, and we're excited to share that story with you guys today. And right now, I'm the founder of the 2030 Collaborative. We're also joined by Shannon Kelman. Could you tell us a bit about you in the work that you're out there doing? Absolutely. And thank you again so much for having us today. So I'm Shannon Kelman. I am the policy director at the organization Jenny mentioned, Friends of the Global Fight Against AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria. And the organization focuses on ending those three epidemics, as well as promoting global health 
writ large. I have about a decade's worth of experience working actually not in global health, but in politics and in foreign policy. So I come at this from a a slightly different perspective of how does working in global health promote U.S. interests broadly and how can that make the U.S. a safer country? We could have a whole podcast on that topic alone. And uh, that's something we might have to think about doing because I think it's worthwhile having. So thank you for joining us, Shannon. We're also joined by Mark Lagon. Mark, tell us a bit about you and your work. Well, I also work at Friends of the Global Fight Against AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria, where I'm Chief Policy Officer. I'm a professor at Georgetown. I've worked full-time. I'm part-time now. And I'm also a senior fellow at the Faith-Oriented Trinity Forum. In the past, I've focused on some other issues of human rights, human trafficking, what international organizations work and which don't. But probably most interesting, I was U.S. ambassador to combat uh, human trafficking at the State Department at the end of the Bush administration, and have headed a couple of nonprofits, Freedom House and Polaris, also on trafficking. My deep interest is in those people who are treated as less than human or stigmatized or, or left out. And that, you know, is true of health, human trafficking, and many other things. All right. COVID-19 pandemic. It's been central to our lives now for a year and a half-ish. As we record this late August of 2021, we're in this Delta age, uh, this Delta variant, and the debate rages, is is, uh, is this the second wave, or where are we going from there? And uh, again, most listening to this are in the U.S., and so we all are, are certainly familiar with what's happening on the ground here But there's a lot bigger picture to think about here. And what I want to do first is is go around and ask all three of you to comment on the state of COVID-19 globally, where we we think things are at this time and place. Mark, we'll lead off with you if you could tell us what you're thinking uh, as our global state of the world with COVID-19. Well, COVID-19 has shown that, you know, diseases don't respect borders and just as we talk here in the United States about equity, whether the people who are, you know, are the frontline workers, people of color who've been more exposed, they need access to care and the vaccines. But there's also a big way in which in the global south and the developing world, they've been whacked by the COVID-19 situation. Shannon, Jenny, and I all work on things related to AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. And All the programs that the United States has championed on those have been thrown off. But with Delta as a variant, now we've seen an early, as of early August, uh, COVID-19 deaths rising more than 80% in sub-Saharan Africa. And the need for vaccines is clear. And also those things that go with it, testing people if they have it, therapies if if they've got COVID-19. It's a pretty dire situation. And it's, you know, I think it sensitizes the United States and the American people about what connects their lives with those abroad. Shannon, what are your thoughts, comments on the state of COVID 19 globally? Yeah, I very much agree with what Mark said. I think the state of COVID 19 is extremely worrying when you think about it on a global scale. The Delta variant certainly is of great concern to those of us in the States, and it raises sort of a, are we going back into lockdown? Are we going back into all of those things that we've experienced for the past year and a half? And we have access to vaccines. We have easy access to testing. We have easy access to medicine and a healthcare system that isn't on the verge of collapse. And that is just unfortunately not the case in a great many places around the world where we don't know the state of the COVID, the COVID burden you know, in many places in Sub-Saharan Africa, for example, because they just don't have access to testing in the way that we do. Uh, They don't have access to medicine. They might not have access to community health workers. And what access they do have is very limited. And COVID-19 is putting just a, a dramatic strain on those systems. So as much as, you know, getting vaccines out there is, is going to be the way to end the pandemic. I don't see the pandemic ending for quite some time. And it's going to take at least a year, if not much, much longer to get vaccines out to low and middle income countries. Yeah, it's fascinating to think there's a debate that, that continues to this day as to how well did the U.S. handle the COVID-19? And there's a lot of people that say there's we, we fell short in a lot of ways. And we're the world's largest economy. We have a, a strong healthcare system. We have access to all the testing. We have unused 
vaccine because not everyone's doing it. I mean, and that's us. Can you imagine, like, as we record this in August 2021, think about Afghanistan right now. Imagine if you're responsible for dealing with COVID in Afghanistan. Think of how complicated that process is. And I don't think everyone always thinks about that. Jenny, uh, what are your thoughts on the state of, of COVID-19 globally? Yeah, so I have COVID in my house right now. So um, this is this is home. My 11-year-old has it. And he was the one of us that was not vaccinated. And we don't know how he got it. The Delta variant is running rampant through the South right now. I'm in Nashville. There are 3,000 cases in Metro Nashville schools this week of kids being out. So it's definitely right here in Middle Tennessee and through these states where there is obvious vaccine hesitancy, undecided folks where more than half or around half of the people are still unvaccinated. So it's something we do need to, to deal with here in the United States in terms of combating the hesitancy, better messaging, better leadership. I work with faith leaders. I wish, I wish, I wish faith leaders would be on the front lines of encouraging their congregants to get the vaccine, to mask properly, because kids like my own child are upstairs sick with COVID because of it. And so then think about that internationally. I can still go down, you know, if if Ollie were to get sick, I can still go to the ICU ward not far from my house. Many mothers with children cannot do the same in developing nations. There isn't a ventilator available. So when we're thinking about the spread of this Delta variant in through the developing nations, it is a very scary prospect. And then thinking about that systemically, how that's going to impact and has impacted, and I know we're going to talk about it today, the issues of HIV, TB, and malaria, three more epidemics. It's time to really sit down and talk about how we as a nation can lead on these issues. Thinking about the vaccine, I do believe that someday we'll write, we'll read books about the miracle of how quickly we came up with these vaccines. And I still don't think most people truly appreciate what happened there and how amazing that was. But not a day passes that I don't read some articles saying, here's how to convince people to, to take this thing and to actually get it. And, and we're, still, we're still right in the middle of it. Shannon, you touched on the fact that this thing is still, we're still got years on this. The Spanish flu of, of the early 1900s, that took two, three years to fully kind of work itself through. And we're still very early in this. I worry that there were some people who thought, all right, got the vaccine, we're done. We've solved this. Now let's move on and get back to our new normal. Not the case. Shannon, uh, what else is necessary to be thinking about here? The vaccine's obviously significant. Thinking about that and celebrating it is all great, but there's a lot more to be done here, right? Talk about what else we need to be thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. 100% correct. The vaccine is definitely a medical marvel. And we can talk a little bit later when we get into the AIDS, TB, and malaria works and what that actually could mean for AIDS, TB, and malaria in particular. But what we need right now on a global scale is actually sort of simple. We need diagnostics. We need testing to know what the state of the COVID-19 pandemic is everywhere. We need medicine, and that's everything from the actual medicine to help respond to patients who have severe COVID, as well as things like medical oxygen, which we went through a period where there was that was hard to find, especially as folks may remember the huge upsurge in cases in India. That was one of the, the big problems. We need PPE so that community health workers aren't at risk, because in many of these places, there's you know, one community health worker for 100 miles. And if that person gets sick or, God forbid, dies, that's it. That's the person who is taking care of the community. And then as soon as we can, we need to be rolling out vaccines. And all of these things combined, we know what we need to do. It's sort of a matter of investment in of money and time and political will to make sure that it happens on a global scale. We have things like the ACT Accelerator, the Access to COVID Tools Accelerator, which is this group of global organizations, including organizations like Gavi, COVAX, that might be familiar to the audience, as well as the Global Fund, WHO, all of these global organizations coming together to address COVID on all of these different aspects. And it has those three pillars, the, the testing, the, the medicines, and then vaccines, and then it has a, a connector a sort of a health systems connector to deal with exactly what Jenny was talking about, about ICU access and ventilators and 
and testing laboratories, all of those aspects that are in addition to the, the sort of very basic COVID plan response. And we need to be stepping those up and scaling those up as much as we can until COVID is ended. Because the longer this goes on, the more variants will develop. And not to be completely <laughs> depressing, but I live in great fear that a variant will develop that is not responsive to the vaccine in one way or another. And you know, Delta is less responsive, it's still quite responsive. And so therefore, we're a little bit more encouraged on that front. But if this were to go on in perpetuity without vaccinations, I worry that we would get to that point and it would be hugely detrimental to ending this. No doubt about that. I've girded myself to believe that this will be a never-ending fight. And just like I get a flu shot, a regular flu shot every year, I suspect it's possible for a long while we'll be getting some variant of a COVID or some other coronavirus vaccine, maybe forever. Who knows? That's the other thing. We don't know where this is going. And uh, brilliant, smart people are focusing on this every single day. And, and uh, as knowledge gets understood, uh, we disseminate as best we can. But we're kind of figuring this thing out. Mark, any other thoughts on where we go beyond vaccines? I think the thing that's different from what my colleague Shannon said so well is just to think about things as a people-centered matter. People in the United States are not disconnected from people elsewhere. As the conservative Republican senator from Arkansas, John Bozeman, says, a pandemic is only a plane ride away. And we shouldn't only think about poorer countries, but the poorest in countries. In India and Brazil, big economic success stories, it's the poorest or the disliked minorities or people in slums and megacities that are the ones left behind. And last, on COVID and any other pandemics, and we need to think of the people on the front line like Shannon has described. Recently, I wrote about community health workers. It just like Shannon said, they can be very few of them in rural and remote areas. They're sometimes not paid. They need to be trained. They need to be protected. And they know what their community needs. We should look to the faith-based or secular people who know what their community needs. Well, Mark, let's go deep on that because this is an area where I think a lot of people don't spend a lot of time thinking about or worrying about or understanding, certainly. And that's this idea of these marginalized populations. What have marginalized populations in these low and middle income countries? What are they doing? How are they doing? What should we be thinking about? How are they facing this pandemic? Well, to date, there are about 4.96 billion vaccine doses that have been administered. And about 65 out of 100 people in the world have gotten it. But it's very skewed um, with more you know, than 5 billion people without even one dose. And right now, under 2%, like something like 1.7% of Africa's population has been fully vaccinated. So no society is safe unless there's pretty full vaccination. But we've learned lessons. I think the United States has learned lessons by championing, fighting famous epidemics in the past. HIV, AIDS, and malaria, for instance, where the U.S., you know, on a bipartisan basis has fought those with partners around the world, started under President Bush and is continued by others. Looking for those people who are neglected or poor or discriminated against, they don't get access to prevention of a pandemic like AIDS or the treatment unless you pay attention to human rights and the basic idea that everyone you know, created in the image of God is you know, equally valuable. Shannon, how do we begin to help these marginalized populations. I mean, I just read an article yesterday that healthcare frontline workers walked out, and I think it was in the state of Georgia where I heard this. Uh, they're just overwhelmed by the situation and these all these unvaccinated people coming in. I mean, that's this is in the United States. I mean, how are we to think about what can be done? How do we support? How do we provide any kind of an infrastructure to help these marginalized countries tackle this? The problem, and I think about it. It's almost overwhelming. How do we begin to process, break it down, and really dive into this? Yeah, it does feel a little overwhelming when you look at it, especially on a global scale. And ultimately, that's why institutions like the Global Fund exist, to channel resources 
from wealthier nations, donor countries like the United States, but you know, our partners in Europe and Japan and Australia to sort of spread around a little bit of the abilities that we have at home to address some of these issues and make sure that those in the developing world have access to these technologies, have access to medicine and testing that will allow them to develop a plan. And some of the biggest achievements in U.S. foreign policy in the past 20 years have been our global health programs. And they are bipartisan. They're hugely supported across the board in politics in D.C. Um, you know, some of the biggest champions on either end of, that, of the political spectrum. And things like PEPFAR, which is the, the president's emergency response for, for AIDS relief, is was created under the Bush administration, the second Bush administration, as well as the Global Fund and our participation in the Global Fund. So was the President's Malaria Initiative. The the USAID TB program is a a bit longer standing because TB has been a a longer problem for us to deal with. But it is something that, you know, we should be investing in those programs, both the, the U.S. programs and the global ones, on a scale that if COVID has done anything, it has made it readily apparent how important global health programming is for American interests and for global interests. And there's no reason why we can't be just really scaling up the work of, of those tools so that we can help these community health workers get them the, the things that they need and, and end the pandemic. Yeah, if anyone has any doubt or concerns that the U.S. has a role to play, they probably don't understand PEPFAR. I mean, that's one of the great case studies of the kind of leadership that we, that we the U.S., can provide, but that the global community can come together and really have. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's an amazing story, what PEPFAR has done and, and, and what it continues to do. And and uh, I wish we had more time to really get into that. We'll spend some more time talking about it. Jenny, I wonder if you could do a favor for me. For those listening, uh, Shannon just again mentioned the Global Fund. Uh, could you just take a second and, and explain from 10,000 feet what, what that is? And so that someone listening can understand that there already is an infrastructure in place to kind of tackle these kinds of things. I just want to be sure people understand what that is and, and in essence, how it works. Exactly. So, yeah, I'd be happy to do that. Let me take a step back too, because in listening to Shannon, I was thinking about kind of being the devil's advocate and thinking of someone who might say, but gosh, are we really ready to spend that much money on foreign assistance for these issues? It sounds overwhelming. It sounds like something we can't afford. And just as a reminder, we spend a quarter of 1% on our global health account. Quarter of 1%. So of our U.S. budgets every year on these issues. So it, it is really just less than a penny to the dollar as to what we're doing on foreign assistance for our international affairs. So just to put that out there and put that back into perspective economically, Thinking about the Global Fund, you know, you mentioned PEPFAR, and I got into this before even PEPFAR was announced in 2003 by President Bush and worked with the architect of PEPFAR, Senator Frost, who was the majority leader who pushed the legislation forward. So it's been just amazing to watch that be perhaps the legacy of the Bush administration over the last 20 years. It has saved the lives of 20 million people. It focuses on a a number of countries but not to the extent of the Global Fund. The Global Fund is a multilateral mechanism where we contribute $1 for every two that the world gives. So we are the leading funder for the Global Fund and we lead the way for that for AIDS, TB, and malaria in this fight, but we do require back $2 from the remaining countries and other foundations around the world. To date, to compare the Global Fund a little bit to PEPFAR, You know, the Global Fund is in over 135 countries, and Shannon and Mark can always correct me if I get any of these stats wrong. And to date, they have impacted the lives and saved the lives of over 38 million folks from AIDS, TB, and malaria. So almost twice, because they're also working on these issues of TB and TB testing. They're they're working on getting bed nets to people around the world and combating malaria. And then they're also working hand-in-hand with the infrastructure of PEPFAR to make sure that they're covering the needs of antiretroviral medication, testing, and care for those who are victims of AIDS and prevention of AIDS around the world. So they lead the world in combating these three epidemics. 
And the good news is we have seen a steady decline over the last 20 years. We have cut in half the number of people dying from AIDS over the last uh, 20 years, per se. The Global Fund itself, and it's not even including the other bilateral legislation that Shannon mentioned, TB has been cut back the deaths by 22%, and malaria has been cut back by 60% as a whole, so with the president's malaria initiative. So we've made epic strides for history and our generation to do this. We know how to combat these epidemics. We just need the will, the political will, and we just need the funding to continue this fight into 2030 because the statistics show that if we continue moderate investments into the Global Fund leading the world on these issues, we can end these three epidemics. So in the face of COVID, we've got to keep pressing forward. Thank you for sharing some uh, insight on on what the Global Fund's about and that infrastructure that exists. 38 million lives saved. Uh, to me, it's like uh, here in the States, hearing our government talk about trillion-dollar legislation, most people can't even fathom that number and really grasp the significance of it. And 38 million lives saved is a number that seems so almost unbelievable that you can't even really truly understand it and appreciate it. I mean, does anyone know to date as we record this, how many people have died from COVID-19? It's just, it's over a million now, isn't it? Something like that. So when you think about that, and then you hear about 38 million lives saved, uh, it's mind-blowing. And, and I hope people can get their mind around the significance of that. Mark, let's shift into a discussion around, uh, I guess, a two-part question. And this, again, will be a group conversation. Where were we, turn of the calendar into 2020 with HIV, AIDS, tuberculosis and malaria. I mean, we were making significant progress. We had a long ways to go, but we were really, it was really exciting to see where things were going and the work of the Global Fund and and these things like PEPFAR were having a profound effect. Kind of set the table about where we were with all of this before COVID. Well, because the world came together, the U.S. offered leadership uh, in PEPFAR and the President's Malaria Initiative. And the Global Fund is kind of more of a, a more nimble, multi-stakeholder thing. It's not just like old-fashioned international organizations made up of governments with their political agendas, but it includes business and secular groups and faith-based groups as part of its board and on the groundwork. You know, Jenny really touched on it. I mean, if you just if you break it down more than that giant number of 38 million, if you think of the fact that 20 years ago there was a plague called AIDS. And it was wiping out the generation that was most economically productive and reproductive in all African societies and elsewhere. That was something that was going to completely rock the futures of Africa and create instability too. Innovation, kind of like the vaccination situation, innovation totally changed things because There was antiretroviral treatment. It meant that AIDS wasn't a death sentence. And people could live with AIDS on treatment through the world. And that allowed partnerships to put the kind of dent in things that that Jenny alluded to. Since 2002, 56% fewer AIDS deaths, 22% fewer TB deaths, 46% fewer malaria deaths. So I just say about the dent in those it was very significant, and there was still a job to be done, but the idea of actually getting epidemiological control, not zero AIDS, TB, and malaria, but no longer epidemics, that was within reach. In comes COVID, and it rocks shaky health systems around the world, which the Global Fund for several years has, has felt they ought to help, that they've been devoting funding to strengthen because it's important for AIDS, TB, and malaria, but also in general for the people of those countries. COVID-19 has caused all sorts of disruption to the progress by our partner countries in the world. There's you know, been a, a de- decrease in testing that's been really striking. There's been a, you know, a decrease in how many people can be put on antiretroviral treatment. And you know, they're, they're poor people. They're people with minorities that their government you know, doesn't like. And they aren't being reached as easily when there's a lockdown or when the, the health system has to focus on COVID-19. 
let me give you a human idea about this. We've made a lot of progress against malaria. Part of that has been distributing bed nets and then giving guidance to families in rural places from their faith leaders, from their community leaders. If your kid gets a fever, you got to get them into a clinic within 72 hours because they might die of malaria. Okay, so what happens when COVID-19 comes and your kid might get a fever from that and you're scared to go to the clinic because they might be exposed in a COVID-19 sense? Those are the practicalities in the real life of a poor family in a rural African country. The Global Fund's jumped in. It it, it considered absolutely essential to keep going on progress on AIDS, TB, and malaria to have an emergency fund on COVID. And it's shown that that we have assets that could prepare countries for future pandemics and respond to them because they're going to come. Ebola came, COVID came, a Delta variant came, and there's going to be more, as you say, John. You know, I thinking about HIV and TB and malaria for a second, I was just this past weekend watching a documentary about David Geffen, the media mogul, music and movies, and and was a big AIDS activist uh, back in, in the 80s and, and lost, he lost a lot of friends to AIDS. And back in that, st- in that stage, it was a death sentence. And flash forward to 2021, we really don't talk about it anymore. Right now, I, I read a lot of history books and I can't tell you there's not a book about World War II, which is a particular interest that doesn't, where malaria isn't a significant part of the dialogue. And, and we don't really talk much about that anymore. And no, the problem still exists and there's still significant thousands are still getting AIDS all the time. I mean, it, it's still a problem, but we've made amazing progress. It, and we ought to be excited about that. But thinking again about how COVID's impacted this, I mean, Shannon, I'd love for you to an, initiate a discussion around this. Uh, I have a feeling that the work we've done to make significant progress on things like HIV and TB and malaria, I'm assuming we've learned and applied some of those lessons to our battle with COVID. And I'd be curious to know if my theory is accurate there. But also, no doubt that COVID has distracted. Uh, we have a very political society where, you know, we chase shiny bells and whistles and the new hot things. Everyone's got to be thinking about COVID and we lose focus on other things. But talk about what has been, I think, a successful battle against things like HIV, TB, and malaria. Have, have probably served us well in, in initiating our attack on COVID. And hopefully we're learning some lessons about where we can go from here. Why don't, you, why don't we just kind of talk about that idea about COVID. Yeah, it's been distracting, but it's also probably providing opportunities for us to learn things to advance fronts in all these battles. Yeah? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's more than just distracting. You know, there's only so many resources to go around, right? It it pulls things away. But yeah, absolutely. Our work on AIDS, TB, and malaria has laid the groundwork for combating COVID-19 tremendously. The community health worker networks that both Mark and I referenced, you know, those were in place largely because of work to to combat the those three epidemics. And you have things like the the gene expert machine, which is sort of this like it looks a little bit like a mini fridge and it helps process uh, COVID-19 testing. And they are around the world because they also process tuberculosis testing. And so these machines, there's so much overlap. And there's overlap in the negative sense of, you know, there's these resources are being taken away to focus on COVID. And we need to make sure that we're still on track with AIDS, TB, and malaria. But you also have the flip side, which is the development of the COVID vaccines, these mRNA vaccines, the Pfizer and Moderna specifically. They are, that science is pretty new, actually, and being translated into how can we think about this for existing epidemics? And so there's actually a trial that's going to start in December for an mRNA vaccine against malaria, which is huge news in our world. And very exciting. And so when we think about, okay, we've we've scaled up these diagnostics for COVID, we've scaled up the vaccines, definitely not enough. We need there's more work to be done. But how can we translate that into work on these existing epidemics? And I think there's a lot of overlap and there's a lot that can be done on on all fronts. I think what what we risk in the political sphere, and both domestically talking about it in DC and on a global scale, is trying to silo these diseases out. 
And we talk about, okay, here's the work that we're doing on HIV. These are the people we're saving. This is the work that we're doing. And then and there's a separate silo for TB and for malaria and for COVID. If you're a mother and your kid is sick and you bring your kid to a doctor, you don't go to a doctor and say, hi, my kid has tuberculosis. You go, hi, my kid has a cough. And so we need to be thinking about these things as a, a more holistic level. And I think there's a lot of reason to be worried about our current state as much as have hope for where we go for from here. Well, so I, I suppose it's fair to hope that our, because most people couldn't have defined a pandemic a year and a half ago. Now we can. Now we understand kind of the issue. We understand the general scope of how this thing could work. I imagine this is going to perhaps make it easier longer term to talk to people about things like HIV and TB and, and malaria. And now that we have this I, better un- awareness of the general scope of how a pandemic works. Jenny, any other thoughts on the current battle with HIV, TB and malaria and how COVID's impacting things, good and bad? Yeah. I mean, as Shannon was talking, I was reminded, you know, the initial question when I started getting into these issues back in the year 2000 with a professor at Vanderbilt was, what if we do nothing? And I think that's the question before us. If we don't support the Global Fund and continue to fight the subsequently or alongside this fight against COVID with proper amounts of funding, if we choose not to do anything, if we choose not to support this, how are we going to reverse the tide? Everything we've done so far to gain traction and momentum to end these epidemics, as Mark said how many more millions of people will die, frankly. If we don't fight this front on COVID-19, how many more people will die if we don't get these vaccines? So it is a question. If we choose to do nothing, what are the consequences of that? So we have to think and weigh these things carefully. Well, and that's an example of what I was saying. I think 18 months ago, if we asked that question, people either wouldn't know or wouldn't care. And I think maybe they do now or are beginning to, and I, or at least I hope so. And so that's, that may be maybe a benefit of this is that there's more awareness of these kinds of things. And maybe that's a good thing and that we're more conversant on these topics. I do want to shift to our final discussion around global health, uh, but Mark, I'll give you a chance. Any other additional comments on that idea of how all of these epidemics tie together? Jenny's comments really you know, strike home with me. Like, what if we just stopped? working on AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. It's really, you know, when you ask questions about foreign aid, you should see what, you know, whether it works, because it often doesn't, but it has worked. In Afghanistan, all sorts of controversy and heart-rending to watch what's happening there, but people in the Republican Party and people in the Democratic Party sort of thought it was time to pull back because we weren't winning there. But if we pull back from a fight in the very same 20 years from AIDS, TB, and malaria, we would be squandering success as opposed to stepping back from a stalemate. Well, and that's a great transition into our final discussion. This whole conversation around global health and and investments in that and the focus on that. Uh, Several of you over the course of the conversation so far have mentioned the phrase political will. Do we have it or is there a lack of it? And I think that's almost the crux of the whole conversation is, is there the political will to do something about that? We've proven that we can have an impact. And Jenny, you alluded to the fact that the the percentage of our budget that we actually invest in this is so minuscule, but the impact has been profound. It's, gosh, again, it's one of those conversations that it's it's so broad and and I don't really know where to, how to begin tackling it. Uh, I guess, Mark, I'll ask you to kind of just lead off. Uh, talk about this idea. I mean, most of us don't think about health globally. We don't really think about it that way. We're thinking about our own family situation and, and maybe that of our communities and maybe some news item we hear about something coming out of Washington, but we're not thinking about the global picture. Just kind of lead us off on this next discussion of global health and why does thinking about it matter? Yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes when good, decent citizens, some who just, you know, they don't spend their lives thinking about foreign policy or global health because they have more important things to worry about. When they hear a word like foreign aid or sort of health systems, this sort of a skepticism comes up in their mind. But if you kind of make it concrete, so 
Global Fund and others have decided that in order to fight AIDS, TB, and malaria, you need stronger health systems in the country. Okay, so let's scratch the surface. What does health systems mean? Does that mean we should bankroll the National Health Ministry of Countries as some bureaucracy? No. It means the local lab that can test people for COVID-19 or whatever the next pandemic is. The clinic where someone can go in about one problem and find that they have cervical cancer or have HIV AIDS. Um, so we have an, an interest for fighting AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria, but also emerging pandemics and just healthier populations around the world to help with health systems. It, it has to be the responsibility of countries themselves. But we have found that the U.S. funding, particularly through the Global Fund, has propelled countries to do more themselves, not taking them off the hook. I uh, got a, my haircut just the other day. And so it was about a 15-minute walk. And on the way there, I passed four different healthcare walk-in clinics, which most people don't even pay attention to. They don't even realize. They take it for granted. And how many people on, on this earth would love to have access within a 15-minute walk to go to four clinics to get medical care? And, and we here take it for granted. We complain about, oh, it's a little expensive and all oh, that. When, you know, uh, I've done a lot of work in, with water and we all complain here in the States about how expensive it is for our water bill. When, when if we truly understood the scope of how difficult it is for millions of people to get water, we would pay a thousand dollars a month for our water bill. I think our, our priorities are skewed on this issue because we just are, we're take so many things for granted here. Shannon, dive into this conversation around these build, helping build these health systems. I think we this is where I was going earlier saying now we have a little bit more appreciation for why that would be so relevant. That's, that's probably a good thing that we're now more aware of this. And, and there's more understanding globally now about the power of helping build and stabilizing these local health systems. Yeah. Yeah. A strong health system is one the average citizen probably doesn't notice. Right. As you said, you passed four different healthcare outfits of some kind on your, your walk to get a haircut. And so that's what you would want to see, right? Easy access to medical care, whatever that means, easy access to testing for a variety of things to make sure that you stay healthy and, and regular checkups, things like that, things that we in the United States have access to. And I don't want to touch our domestic health apparatus. It's not, not my area of expertise. But there is so much around the world that we could be scaling up. And I think that's a lot of what the Global Fund is trying to do and its partners and U.S. bilateral programs is to, to make it so that you have access to a doctor, access to a nurse um, who can say, okay, you're probably fine. You just have a cough or that makes me concerned. Why don't we run these tests and get things checked out? And so we think about, you know, in the, the public health sphere, we think about pandemic preparedness and response. The response part is easy, right? The response is, there's a disease. How do we respond to it? How do we get diagnostics and medicines out in a, a timely fashion, right? That's the part that we're living through. The preparedness part is, how do we build access to systems and labs and doctors and share technology and share best practices with each other so that when there is the next pandemic, and I don't know when it will be, but there will be another one. And hopefully it's it's easy to deal with and no one dies and we can address it quickly. But if it's not, if it's like COVID, how do we set up systems so that we're not in the situation we are right now where we're worried about variants or worried about access to care or worried about just making sure whether or not you can go to work without worrying about contracting a disease. I think these are sort of the basic questions that we think about when we talk about preparedness and, and how do we prevent something like this from happening again. I want to be careful when I talk about the, this concept of political will. My first mention of it was in context of, does the United States have the political will to invest in global health? But it's important to also understand in these marginalized populations, what are you all seeing? Is there the political will there to do something about that? Are they welcoming our infrastructure support? to help build these things. I mean, uh, from what I've seen, it seems to be the yearning to really invest in this locally in, in these marginalized populations and these third world countries. I mean, there seems to be a real desire and hunger for it. Is that what you're seeing as well, Mark? Can you comment on that? Yeah, there is a hunger. I mean, it's important that countries, both governments and society together decide that they want to tackle a problem. We shouldn't think, you know, 
it, does this country have the political will and only think about its government and its bureaucracy? But there is a will, and we shouldn't have the thought that if we give them assistance in a partnership, that that's going to lead them to spend less. There's been evidence, for instance, the Global Fund, you know, it spurs countries to spend more. It actually nudges it. It says you'll get a bonus amount of money if you spend on your own thing, and we're going to cut back the funding if you don't spend. The will's there, but I think we need to create a, a system where people have the feeling that if you have stronger networks for health, you're going to be better off. I had to give two quick examples. TB, we've made a lot of progress against it, but the treatment that can cure TB is really kind of yucky. It's a miserable multi-month thing. So poor people have, have to walk sometimes from a rural community for miles and miles to get a clinic for the treatment. And as soon as they feel better, a lot of people just get off the TB treatment. And that's led to variants, to TB morphing. And now there's forms of TB that are resistant to multiple drugs that we've got. So there's an interest in access for people who are poor or women who have to spend most of their time in care for their loved ones in their, in their society being able to get, get treated. The last thing I say is when we talk health systems, you know, those frontline caregivers, they are the source of surveillance. They're the ones who will spot an emerging infectious disease so that we don't have an epidemic that overwhelms us. So let's talk now, Jenny, earlier in the conversation, you talked about its impact on our budget, which is significant, but percentage-wise, it's minuscule. To this day, it's still a raging debate. There's still... Why are we spending so much money on this? Why are we foreign aid? Oh, it's a negative. It's a bad. Let's get into that for a second and talk about challenges that organizations like the, the Global Fund face in getting. I mean, you, you shared with me some information before the broadcast. There was a recent funding round for Global Fund and percentages of countries that ended up and, and gave was actually quite impressive and hopeful. And again, I, 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 I wish... COVID-19 didn't happen, but maybe again, it's opening some eyes and maybe that's going to help people realize this is worthy of further investment. Talk about just lay of the land here in the States and the political battles we're fighting to continue these investments. And let's talk about the ramifications of that. I don't think people realize the economic benefit we get from that. I don't think they realize if we all want a world full of peace, how important getting a handle on issues like this would go towards combating war-torn areas in this world, it's all interacted, yeah? That's exactly right. There's so many reasons to invest, albeit minuscule, in these issues. So a couple things. One, one of Shannon's earlier points is that this has been largely enjoyed with bipartisan support since its inception. I mean, a Republican president pushed this forth. A Republican Senate majority leader created some of the legislation during that time frame to lead on foreign assistance. While there were some pullbacks from the executive branch in the Trump administration, by and large, Congress wants to support these issues because, to Shannon's point earlier, we've seen incredible success for our investments. So you could come at it from a variety of perspectives. One, economically, to your point, you know, for every dollar we spend, we see a $19 economic return and health gains in country for this. And we see this with all pandemics. Go ahead and invest early, invest often, and then we don't have to spend the money on the back end. So for economic reasons, it is a wise choice to go ahead and invest in ending these epidemics. You mentioned world peace. Yes, these are for diplomatic reasons. We should continue to invest in these issues for public health reasons. I mean, we saw this with Ebola. We don't want AIDS to become a pandemic that crosses back. And we don't want these pandemics to cross back into our borders. We don't want this to stay in the world and have millions and millions of people die again. And that could be possible, right, if we don't invest in combating these epidemics. And finally, the front that I fight on is the moral issue, right? I mean, I largely work with faith leaders, right of center leaders. And in the early part of working with folks, probably like COVID, is these infectious diseases, particularly AIDS, was highly stigmatized. I'd go meet with pastors and they said, I don't want to fund these issues, you know. 
And then the more they learned about it, the more they were educated. This is really a disease of moms and kids. They were like, gosh, you know, this is beyond us all. And you have folks like even Franklin Graham was on the front lines in 2001 saying this is a pandemic above us all. And if we do nothing, it's going to hollow out societies around the world. So you saw a unified front at that point. So all that to say, there are a variety of reasons that we need to continue investment. And particularly now, perhaps an increase in investment as COVID is wreaking havoc and people trying to get tests, people trying to get their ARVs, people trying to get their bed nets and such, and invest in all that Shannon discussed so that we can fight on the front lines of all four of these issues. I recall a conversation with someone, this is well before COVID-19, on the general topic of foreign aid. Well, why does the U.S. have to always be the leaders on this? And Well, because we can. And, you know, to your moral positioning there, because we, because we should, right? I mean, it's okay to be a world leader on issues like this. And, and from a selfish point of view, yeah, there's a, an economic benefit to the United States for investing in global health. And there are people who, they don't study what's happening geopolitically in Africa the way they should, but they, they hear enough snippets of news that there's always these civil wars and all these dictators and, and all that. And a lot of that civil war is all related to these issues and disease and famine and hunger. And if we could invest in helping these nations tackle some of these issues, some of these civil wars and these internal conflicts, most of the war that we see on the earth today is not between nations. It's civil war. It's internal conflict. And it's oftentimes related somehow to these issues. Mark, add some comment to this general discussion of this. What you're talking about, about those issues that come together. Shannon and I have tried to learn about and written a little bit about the Democratic Republic of Congo. There's lots of sexual violence. There's, you know, corrupt and poor governance. There's been internal war there for the longest time. But they get diseases that make progress against AIDS and malaria. And then Ebola comes and that spikes. And then COVID comes and that spikes. Those sorts of things make solving the other problems impossible. I guess I'd pick up on what Jenny says and say, look, we don't have to do everything that seems like the right thing to do. This is deeply something that's the right thing to do. Because if you want people to thrive and trade with us or not be at war, then not being threatened by disease is important. But I think, you know, in U.S. foreign policy, we shouldn't take up everything. We shouldn't pay for everything. But if it's both in our interests and it serves kind of our values, then that's the place where, you know, interests and values come together that we should do it. I'm struck when I go talk with Republican members of Congress, you'd think maybe talking about the interests in fighting AIDS, tuberculosis, malaria, COVID would be the thing that would matter most to them. But it's very often the fact that it's the right thing to do. And what their constituents need to know is if we have a solution and it works, it's not just pouring funding into something that doesn't work, then this is what you should spend precious tax dollars and finite money on. Well, I always, uh, in thinking about issues like this, I always think of what Winston Churchill said about the United States. He says, the U.S. always does the right thing after they've tried everything else. <laughs> right. Which makes a lot of sense. Let's talk about what can we do? So someone listening to this and says, gosh, yeah, I, I get it. I understand. I want to be an advocate for more of this, but I don't know how. Shannon, I'll ask you, someone listening says, well, I want to learn more. How do they learn more? What should they do? Should they, are there books to read? Are there resources? That, how can people become more educated and more aware? I think the pandemic, as I said earlier, has made us more aware of this general idea of this. But what else can we be doing as individuals to learn more about this whole idea? Yeah. So going to give a quick shout out to our organization. You know, head over to theglobalfight.org. I think there are a lot of resources there to get up to speed on on these issues that we've been talking about. And from there, it feels a bit trite, but write your congressman, write your senator, get involved. I'm going to name check a couple of our partner organizations that work with U.S. grassroots organizations. That's Results and The One Campaign, both of whom are very involved in getting U.S. 
citizens to weigh in on these issues and say, look, we've lived through COVID. We're living through it right now. And we as a nation need to be investing in responding to global health crises and preventing them and preparing for them. And if there's a listener who wants to get more involved, I think start there. The more you weigh in with your political leadership, I think they're easily influenced by people who say, I won't vote for you if you don't do this. So let's get that chorus to be as loud as possible. There are cynics out there that say, these guys don't listen to us, but you all have been on the front lines. That's not true, right? I mean, they do listen. And we know, you know, there's some basic things that when members of Congress hear on the web, email, visits their office calls, they count those things from constituents. And when they're alive, they know that the people they represent think something's important. And if they, in turn, write to their president or write to their own leaders in the House and the Senate and say, here's something that's important to us, like spending money of our small, limited foreign aid on global health, then the people who make the decisions about funding listen. It does matter. We know, we've seen it in Shannon's and my work, and we work with Jenny to try and reach the people and the legislators, however frustrating it is to watch their dysfunction and polarized sniping. Well, having been a political operative myself, I mean, a lot of that is deserved, but there's a lot of good people doing a lot of good work. And it is a bipartisan issue. Our modern press doesn't position our politics that way anymore. They sell more advertising and they get more clicks when they make it us versus them. But there is a lot of unity here. But I don't know that it's, it's at the level of urgency that it should be. And again, I'm hoping that what we're experiencing firsthand with COVID is making us more aware of the value of these kinds of fights. Jenny, talk about the faith-based side of things. Where is that community and what leadership can they provide? I mean, there's a tremendous role that can be played and, and a lot of benefit that can be had on this broad discussion from that community. Yeah? Absolutely. And I just wanted to qualify what Mark said a second ago that he said when a lot of people weigh in and they write their member of Congress, they give them a phone call. He doesn't mean a thousand. We're talking like 20 or 30 in these offices. I mean, Senator Fresta's majority leader said if 300 people in the nation raised the flag on one issue, it hit his desk. 300. So we just need a couple dozen people to speak up to these issues. It doesn't take much. One voice can change millions of lives. So the other thing is, Mark and Shannon and I, we go into these members of Congress' offices, not obviously recently with COVID, but, you know, used to meet with them on Zoom calls. They want to support the Global Fund by and large, honestly. They want to learn more about it. They're excited about its success. Really, it's giving them permission to do the right thing. It's saying, please support these issues. I know it might not be the most popular move in your district, but you've got my support. And then getting to the faith communities, you've got my faith community support. You've got my peer support in our community. So please do move forward with that. So in working with faith communities and faith leaders, of course, these are moral issues in saving lives, right? So we at the 2030 Collaborative run the Faith-Based Coalition for the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, TB, and Malaria. And if you're a faith leader, I would welcome you to join that coalition. You can write me at Jenny at 2030collaborative.com. You can go to 2030collaborative.com and go to our contact information and write us that way. But welcome any and all folks who want to learn more, be more educated, want to educate their constituencies. They want to have a Sunday school class. Whatever it is, we're happy to communicate with you guys and equip you to both promote awareness on this, but also to do the work of advocacy for these important issues. I think you hit it on the head there when you said these political leaders want to do the right thing. They know it's the right thing. Give them the permission to do it. I've thought a lot about this for a long time. That statement right there really just summed it up for me. And that's really all we have to do here because it's it's hard to argue the success of what we've done with that. and. I think the battle ought to be, we ought to be investing more because we look what we've done with one half of 1% or whatever the number you cited earlier. Let's close with one final question. And I'm going to ask each of you to address this. COVID-19, we've been deep in this for a year and a half. We're still deep in the throes of it. 
have we learned lessons that will advance our knowledge of continuing to fight these epidemics and pandemics? And will we be better long-term as a result of this? Shannon, I'll start with you. I think we have. I think we've learned a lot about just generally viruses and how to talk about them and how to get folks to wear masks or get a vaccine or anything like that. And I think, you know, we talked a little bit about some of the science that has come about the development of the COVID-19 vaccines and how that will impact work on other diseases. I think it's also, we learned a lot about contact tracing. There are new apps, there are new tests. There's so much innovation that has come out of this that I think will be a benefit in the long run. I don't know how they're going to be a benefit, but I'm hopeful that they will be. And I think we've learned a lot about what can happen when we as a community, and I mean that sort of as micro to as macro as you want to get from caring about my neighbors and making sure that everyone can access grocery stores and can access the internet so they can work to some of the big issues that we've been talking about uh, on a global scale, that things like the Global Fund and everything in between, I think we've learned a lot about how impactful we can all be if we come together and are really working towards a common goal. And so it's not my normal refrain, but I'm cautiously optimistic. Jenny, what do you think? Have we learned some valuable lessons here? Yeah, I mean, I think I just want to echo a point you keep making, Todd, which is I think that COVID has given us a point of empathy. Whereas, you know, a lot of people may not have traveled to developing nations. They may not have seen the havoc that's been wreaked by AIDS, TB, or malaria around the world, frankly. But they have seen COVID in their own home. They have seen it in their own community. And they understand now in a very personal way what a pandemic looks like and can do in terms of ravaging out and literally causing death in society at home. So I do hope that that moment of empathy extends so that we can rethink how we tackle these other epidemics around the world. Yeah. Last year when we were deep in the original lockdowns, like April, May of 2020, things felt different. I mean, you would see a hurricane attack a coast or an earthquake cause a problem somewhere and you would watch it on the news for a few seconds, then you would move on with the rest of your day at home as if life, nothing changed. It felt different with COVID, right? We were all in that, you know, so... Mark, what about you? What are your thoughts on on lessons learned here? Well, you know, innovation. I would credit President Trump and President Biden credits President Trump for Operation Warp Speed to get those vaccines made. But that's just the start. You need trust by people and information that they're getting about how it's used. You need partnerships like supply chains and ability to get it into the hands of treatment and prevention and so on into the the hands of those who need it. So many, I mean, I think we've really seen the question of inequality and just with much clearer glasses on our nose, seeing those people who are left behind. No human beings should be neglected or uh, scorned, left out or discriminated against getting a chance to be protected against a pandemic disease, totally ending their life or changing it forever. And and we're connected to those around the world who are least fortunate. This is a matter of self-interested, enlightened action. Working for those who are most vulnerable abroad is the right thing, but it'll also stop pandemics from coming here and hurting us. Self-interested, enlightened action. I'm stealing that. All right. I would be curious if anyone listening is interested in diving deeper in any of these massive amounts of things we talked about, would love to go deeper. Send me an email, todd at schnickfoundation.org, and let me know if there's something you want to go deeper on. Maybe we can figure out a way to explore some of these things in much more depth. This conversation really could have lasted 10 hours. So there's so much to talk about here, so much exciting things to talk about. I, I hope people are optimistic that we've come a long way on, on things like HIV and TB and malaria. And I think we've learned a lot of lessons with regards to uh, COVID-19. I, I'm optimistic that there's good things ahead and, and we've got to believe that. And we have to give our leaders permission to do the right thing and invest in, in this kind of stuff. I, I think there is a hunger and a yearning 
from communities all over the world uh, looking to figure out how to do better and, and serve their people better. One last around the horn here, what I'm going to ask each of you to do is if you have any final thoughts, any final comments, any final things you want us to think about, please share that with us as well as how someone can get in touch with you directly if they have any questions. So Mark, I'll start with you. Uh, final thoughts and how to find you. Well, let me start with the latter. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. You inform me, get into a dialogue go deeper on this. I'm mlagon at theglobalfight.org, M-L-A-G-O-N at theglobalfight.org. And our website, as Shannon said, is theglobalfight.org. You know, there are, I just say that, that enlightened self-interest, helping others around the world will not, even, not only keep us, our citizens, safer from pandemics, but people will notice. It will be our brand. China's all over the world investing and influencing countries. There are a lot of you know, other malign forces in the world, terrorists, Russia, that, you know, this is our calling card since PEPFAR was created. We can do the right thing and also have people understand that the United States stands for something and it's their, their partner. And that's, that's not wasteful foreign aid. That's self-interest, rightly understood. Well, and uh, another secret, self-interested, enlightened action is also a, a way to be happy and to feel like you're contributing and provide meaning so uh, it's a good thing. Denny, how do people find you and learn more about your work and any final thoughts from you? Sure, you can reach me at Jenny at 2030collaborative.com and you can find more about our organization at 2030collaborative.com. And I would just say that people often, particularly people of faith, they give money, they're used to doing philanthropy, they're used to giving their time and doing volunteer work, but consider doing advocacy. It takes one minute Go to house.gov, go to senate.gov, type in your zip code, find out who your representative is or your senators are, and just send them a quick email. It doesn't take any time at all, but it really does change the way we do foreign policy. So we would invite you to do that. All right. And Shannon, how can people find you and any final comments from you? Yeah. So folks can find me at, uh, feel free to email me. It's skelman at theglobalfight.org or feel free to follow me on Twitter. I'm Shan Kelman, which is uh, about half global health stuff and half the foster kittens that have been running around here behind me. So it's a little mix of both for folks. And just final thoughts. I think as we have lived through the past year and a half, I think in a lot of ways, COVID has made the world smaller in a good way. What happens around the world impacts us on a, a daily basis. We can't ignore it. And I think that's to our benefit to remember that as as many things as we, as we have access to here in the United States, there are many, many places around the world that don't. And as much as we care what happens around the corner from our house, we should care what happens around the corner on a global scale. And I hope that the folks listening will, will take that. And as Jenny said, get involved, reach out to your members of Congress, reach out to us. And hopefully this is something that we can learn a lot from and, and become a better society for it. All right. Nothing else need be said. Uh, Mark Lagon, Shannon Kelman, and Jenny Dyer, all three of you, thank you so much for the time invested here. I have no idea how long we talked, <laughs> but what a, what a powerful conversation. I learned an awful lot, uh, inspired, optimistic, a lot of challenges out there, but I think we have an opportunity to do some pretty amazing work on behalf of mankind. So thank you for uh, all of your work. Thank you for your devotion to this this cause. And, and again, Jenny, thank you for helping organize this conversation. I'm most grateful to all three of you. All right. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for tuning in to the Foundation Podcast. I am your host, Todd Schnick. We'll see you again next time. Thanks for listening. The Foundation Podcast is produced by Intrepid Media and is made possible in part by the Todd and Stephanie Schnick Foundation. Learn more by visiting schnickfoundation.org. And thank you for listening. Now, get out there and do some good. And we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.